Every sperm is sacred. Every sperm is great. If a sperm is wasted, God gets quite irate. Every sperm is sacred. Hello, sassholes! From one sasshole to another, this is Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to be bringing you bad news. Welcome to Sassholes. With decades of making interesting decisions based on limited information at the time, Jamie and Peter dedicated to helping aspiring sales leaders accelerate revenues with our no BS approach to sales leadership strategies and tactics. Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. We'd like to thank the Man Farm Winalytics, Trent S. and Aaron J. for their continued support. Demandfarm.com, unlock key account growth, smart software to bring account planning and relationship intelligence into your CRM, making key account management practice data-driven, predictable, and scalable. Go to Demandfarm.com, ask for Iron Man. Hey, check out Brent Keltner's Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass at Winalytics.com. In eight weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team start to build the mindset and skills needed to succeed in a new buyer environment. Sign your team up for the Masterclass today at Winalytics.com. If you'd like to help us out to improve the quality of our content, go to Patreon.com slash Sassholes. Okay, it's time for shout-outs. Eric Lochner has got an additional gig as a board member at VCheck Global. What's up, old school? Headhunter.net rules. Matt Yankee, 14 years as a strategic coach. Go Salukis. Elizabeth Jerns, starting a new position as inventory analyst at Kuhn & Nagel. Brandon Doherty, four years at Capture Commerce. Nina Babakina, four years at Gartner. Cara Gannon, one more dial. First year at Zip Recruiter. Zip's lucky to have you, Cara. Jimmy Horvath, three years at Gartner. We'd like to wish a happy birthday to Graham Thornton, Jay Agapi, Antor, and Amy Connolly. Hey, Carney. Yeah, Pete. Carney. Uh, yeah, come on, please. Let's hurry up. What does Jeff Bezos do before he goes to bed? He puts his pajamas on. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say he polishes his rocket. <laughs> That's better. We'll keep both. We'll keep both. <laughs> Marcus Kalki from across the pond. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Pete. Thanks, David. Uh, oh, ab absolutely, absolutely. Now it's not couchy. I got couchy on the mind every time I, I hear about uh, COVID it's and monkeypox. It's from Malta, so it's a it's a um, hard sea like the Italian. Are you from Malta, or you yeah. are you from Malta? Isn't that like yeah, the yeah. smallest island or smallest government in uh, NATO or something like that? But in in the Panama Papers, yeah, we we really excel um sorry. so so marcus <laughs> uh, don't they have a secret society of malta isn't there something also with malta there's like some secret society of malta uh then maybe i'm clearly not involved uh, i'd never join a club that would have or you're really good at keeping it a secret right <laughs> yeah absolutely you'll never know <laughs> you'll have to take Carney, my teeth and fingers why you make my editing life hard why why you do this? Why you do this? Sorry, I just was fascinated by Malta. I've never met the Maltese. I, I love Malta milk. So Marcus, you're from across the pond. You're 
you're a chief revenue officer, you're a sales coach. I did a degree in Middle Eastern studies, which was four years of watching spaghetti hoops run across a page in a hungover haze, because this was in the good old days when students really went to town. So I had a lovely time, four years avoiding work. And then I realized that I was fit for nothing. I got a job supporting the Australian consul in Manchester as uh, her executive assistant. So a year later, her filing was in ruin and I got a job in sales Um, never really looked back. I've sold direct. I've sold uh, business to consumer. I've sold B2B. I've had my own business. I've done recruitment. I've built teams uh, and I've screwed up royally. Um, and historically, what I've been really good at um, is learning after about the 11th mistake uh, in a row because I'm a very slow learner. But when I do, uh, then I'm very good at passing on how not to do stupid things. So for the last 18 years or so, I've been helping people in the tech space to get out of their own way and literally double the money for half the work. Um, I, I'm fundamentally lazy. Now you're ch chief revenue officer at mobile practice. Is that true? Yeah, I've been a, a fractional CRO uh, this year uh, or the last 18 months for several companies. What I've realized is that in order to do the job that they want, you've got to be careful that what they're looking for is a genuine CRO, not a chief sales officer, who are quite different. What is mobile practice? Mobile practice is a micro coaching and micro practice app. The rule is very simple. Uh, managers need to coach what they see. They need to coach in the moment on the job, operational coaching uh, at the point of need. And very often the coaching doesn't need an hour, incense, candles and kumbaya. What it needs is two minutes of really good questions and answers and then agreement as to what the other person is going to do. And then they own the problem and then they go away and they do this. Now, when you teach your managers to do this, what happens is you free up on average, and this is from a 2020 uh, LSE study, uh, you release 20% of the average manager's working week. That's one day per manager per week. Well, two and a, yeah, just nearly two and a quarter months per manager for free, just by changing that one behavior. Mobile practice does is it allows you to create teachable moments so you can video you can create a video moment and I can say, Pete, I noticed when we introduced the price rise and you told Jamie about it, your voice cracked a little bit. Do you mind telling me why? And I can investigate why. And then I can create a practice scenario with specific behaviors and the evaluation criteria. Now, what's interesting is on average, they'll record themselves four or five times before they save the final edit. Now, that means they're raising their own level of self-awareness, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the best possible outcome, because salespeople realizing they are a car crash is the first the starting point. Without that awareness, you're not going to teach them anything of any real value. So, Marcus, what is a fractional CRO? Because I think you're, what, 16 months in the gig and the CROs in the States generally last 18 months. So you're on the clock. Uh do, do you just charge for a portion of the time? or? Oh, wait, hold on. We're interrupting Jamie's breakfast. Are you, you okay there, Jamie? All right. You don't, you don't get between a man and his breakfast. What sort of a monster are you?
<laughs> and the answer probably I, I don't know i mean as far as i was concerned this was a grand uh, series of grand experiments every one of the businesses that i'm involved with is a startup and those are a series of sequential uh, and uh, occasionally in parallel uh, hopefully non-fatal experiments now if you make it through that series of non-fatal experiments you now have to start again because you're then to the you're around to the next iteration and what I've realized is virtually every problem that is uh, that sales operations are trying to deal with is actually a wicked problem. It's not a simple problem. And that wicked problems are defined by the fact that they're um, a series of tests and none of them quite work out right first time. So you've got to keep going back and back and back. The stakeholders differ and vary. The rules change as you go and the stakeholders dip in and out, and there are no perfect solutions, only imperfect outcomes. Now, if you look at the SaaS market, the MarTech market, the SEP space, that's a trillion dollar a year market, and sales are going down. Performance results are down, consistently down. They have been since this technology has been around. Now, it's not that the technology is bad, in many cases, although I have to ask whether or not we need another $300 million to get another email sequencer in the market. Um, but uh, my question is this, if you understand that these things are intertwined and there are these moving parts and this system has found an unhappy equilibrium and you start to prod at it and tinker without any design and without any thought of what the follow-on consequences are, then you end up with the shitstorm that we've had. Can I say that? I don't know. Um, yeah, I can, obviously. Encouraged. <laughs> so the, the problem is there is a desperate lack of uh, deep, intelligent thought. Where you have processes north of 80% failure rates, and we only have to look at email. There's 1.21 quadrillion emails inflicted on us every year by bots. There's 3.4 quadrillion digital adverts that are served up by Google and Facebook every year that get zero or one click for which they collect $265 billion of suckers' money as they pull the handle of the one-armed bandit. You've got the noise of content, the deafening silence to, that surrounds them because they can't hear or see anything. So the question you have to ask is, is there a better way than a 97 to 99% failure rate? And to my mind, that's what we should be looking at. So that's what the last 18 months has been, trying to work out how can you do things better? What can you do to eliminate the waste? And if, if, I, if Jamie came to you and said, you need to speak to this Marcus character, what's the probability you would take the call, Pete? 100%. Zero percent. Zero. Right. And if Marcus turns up with something that is timely, relevant, valuable, and you can afford it, what's the probability on a score of zero to 10, what's the probability you would buy? Um, 66%. No, zero to right. 10, he didn't listen. Eight. It's 6.6, it's I'll take that. Okay, so that means 66% of my uh, attempts 
uh, to go through Jamie where he has an intimate relationship where he already has trust and he and I trust one another, I've got at least a two thirds probability of closing versus a three to 5% if I go cold. So my question is, can we apply the same skills that we've refined for this noisy, messy, useless outbound, the results are going down. It's fine that you're getting more meetings. It's fine you're getting more demos. You're just incurring more costs. When one of these recipes is is discovered in the in the go-to-market area, it gets overdone. Like they apply it to everything and anywhere. I think SDRs and BDRs is a perfect example. They're basically walking spammers. Uh, I, I get hit up for facilities. I get hit up for this. I get hit up for that. Nothing's relevant. And I get hit up 20 times a day from a different SDR BDR. And I feel like we've over, we over rotate as a, as a, a business, like, Hey, this works somewhere. Now we're over rotated. Now everyone is doing it. Well, th there's a fantastically interesting character, a guy called Martin Lindstrom. Have you read his book biology? No. Okay. B-U-Y-ology. Um, and his other book, which I really, really love is small data. Um, if you're actually having conversations with other human beings, they tell you how to sell to them. And you do not need a large number of customers or prospects, because if you have a 66 to 88 to 90% close rate, and you've already bypassed the barrier to entry because the person introducing you has lowered the, uh, the barrier um, and you borrow their credibility, the sales cycles are shorter. You can invest more time in making sure you have coverage. And there is a really simple clue. And I guarantee this is the, the solution to every company's short-term pipeline problem, but no one will do it because they are addicted to mainlining on short-term quarterly panic, okay? And it's this, focus exclusively on your medium-term pipeline. In six to nine months, your short-term pipeline problem will always be taken care of as long as you keep topping it up. And you will never have the peaks and troughs and the drama and the crises and have to do fireside sales and shit like that. Because what's interesting now is um, Y Combinator, Tiger, Sequoia have um, come out six weeks ago saying it's no good going after growth at any cost. You now have to make a profit. If you're not collecting cash, you're dead to us. Yeah. Now, there are tech, there are SaaS leaders who for the last 12 years have never, ever, ever made a profit. There are SaaS salespeople who don't know how to make a profit and SaaS managers who don't know how to coach salespeople how to. And everything that they did that made them a hero in the past now makes them a villain because it eats into profit. You can't steal a deal and pull it forward because now you create a tariff of, and this is based on 80 million cold calls. On average, it takes roughly 33 to 46 dial attempts to get one effective and 14 effectives to get one first meeting. And of the first meetings, only one in eight progresses to a second. Now you work out the mathematics on that. Even at the low end, 33 times 14 times eight to get to a set to get to a third meeting, which is normally first meeting is chemistry and discovery, 
Then there's the demo, and then they vomit up the proposal that the customer never touched or saw. So it's a work of fiction. It's not a statement of work. So then they have a one in three, one in four, one in 10 hit rate. That's all massively inefficient. Sounds like you're better off just, why, why do you have BDRs? Why don't you just put the money in AdWords? Uh, well, yes-ish, perhaps, but there is a better way. And the better way is unfortunately uh, is going to come with the cull that I think is around the corner. Um, if you listen to Todd Capone, uh, he runs a pod called The Sales Historian, um, and it's fascinating. He collects magazines from the 1850s onwards, uh, sales magazines and management magazines. And he, uh, I interviewed him for my pod a couple of weeks back, and he said that 1922 mirrors exactly the circumstances today and the six years preceding it. In 1922, 80% of salespeople in the United States were laid off. Now, I reckon about 30% of sales jobs will disappear from SaaS and go into websites because they can be replaced by Siri or Alexa because they offer no value other than giving discounts and being irritating. Um, about 20% will go into the enterprise space and those will be genuine salespeople who understand that their job is to help the customer facilitate the right decision for them today and in the future, whether it involves them or not, and making sure that the customer feels safer with them on that buying journey next to them than without them. Because even if it doesn't work out, you build enormous goodwill, loads of intel, and if you recommend the competitor, you massively gain cachet. If it's wrong for you, but it's right for a competitor and the customer, why wouldn't you make that introduction? Most people are looking to do their enemy harm. I'm looking to find common ground with my competition. Let's say fast forward 10 years after that. How do you replace enterprise ready sales reps when you got rid of all the middle market SaaS guys? I don't think you need to. It's not about just replacing them. It's about adapting. How mm -hmm. do we make this better? And the, the right starting point actually is the end. That you know, Stephen Covey was right. Begin with the end in mind. Have you come across jobs to be done theory? No. Okay. Jobs to be done theory is just a game changer. And um, there's a book by a guy called Bob Mester, M-O-E-S-T-A, which everyone who's listening to this has to read. Bob is one of the three freshest minds in sales alive today. Um, and he built, he's an engineer with 5,000 patented products to his name. Uh, the problem was he had to work out how to shift some of the damn things because people weren't buying them. And what he understood because of the work by this guy, Professor Clay Christensen, around jobs to be done, is everyone serves a job to be done. And there is a community of people whose job it is to execute. And these executors have a part to play. They're a cog in the machine. When you understand the moving parts and their part to play in the job, then their irrational behavior makes a hell of a lot of sense. If we look at the SaaS market, at least a third of those companies out there are VC or private equity backed. And historically, they have had a financial model that built their valuation based on three major factors. Um, new logos, 
pipeline and new revenue. So basically, capture as much market share as quickly as you can and scale and then plow everything back into building this mass massive machine. And so HubSpot, 11, 12 years in, has never made a profit. Good business, you know, one of the more forward-thinking ones, one of the better ones. But the reality is they've never made a profit. Now, Sequoia is one of their lead investors. They've just told them they have to make a profit. The leadership doesn't know how to make a profit. The management doesn't know how to make a profit. And sales doesn't know how to make a profit. And they've got all these SDRs out there pounding away. And they are no different from any other SaaS company. So I'm not singling them out. Okay. But what they're doing is they're pounding the phones and they're sending out marketing material at the wrong time because the buyer, the real journey is when they realize there's something wrong, they make space for it. And they, their, their brain, um, their reticular activating system uh, gets triggered when that symptom gets happens more and more. So then they start to move into passive looking where they're learning how. Now, in that time, if they receive a sales call, you lose a point. You're just an interruption, you're an irritation. This is about understanding that you have to meet your customer where they are, not where no. you want them. You can't force them there. But how do you do that? that? That's very difficult. Like one of the things you said was, when there is a problem, they make space for it. But I agree with you. But when it's a new category or something new technology that they don't know that there is space for it, sometimes they just say, hey, there's a problem here. And they move forward because they don't know of anything else. How do you catch them at the right time to make them open up budget? And then hopefully you don't lose that budget to a competitor that does a half-assed version of what you're doing. Okay. Would it surprise you if I told you that in the last 18 years, I've only ever taken budget four times from planned budget and that normally formed the, uh, a part payment for the deposit. Oh, no, I'm, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. I think in a good, good economy, that's the case. Like right now, what's going on is the budgets are kind of tight. There's still some spending to be had out there. How do I tell you you're wrong without you getting upset? I, you can get me upset all you want. Tell the fuck there's, off. There's always oh, I'm sorry, money. bugger off. I agree, bugger there's off. always budget if you make it more meaningful. <laughs> That, that, that's a term of endearment in my household. Um, so no, that's, that's, that's fine. Okay, now my, my point being here, that there is always money. Recession is nothing more than a mental condition. It's a collective mental condition where a lot of people collectively think, all oh, times are tough. I need to buck, uh, batten down the hatches, tighten the belt and turn into a penny pinching tight ass. But generally what they then do is they stop investing in the things that they should be investing in. They waste a lot of energy on largely masturbatory activity, which is driven by this desperate need to drive KPIs. But they only ever typically look at one part of one third of the uh, equation, which is the finance bit, because the money behind a business permeates the culture of the organization. Now, what that means, in effect, is that you've now got um, people who are being driven by a fraction of the outcome or the thing that drives the outcome that, and they're being focused on the byproduct, not the factors that you can control. 
like the people. If you, and I'm not saying you need to control the people, but if you don't influence them to support and commit and give discretionary effort and get engaged, then you end up with the fifth column and you end up with people who sabotage you. And, and people buy from people, right? That's what I always say. Exactly. So the okay. answer actually comes back to medium-term pipeline. Because if you've got the time to develop the relationships and not show up and vomit sales spiel, when they move from passive to active looking and they're trying to work out what their options are, and then when they move into decision-making, they start taking away stuff. So they sacrifice the stuff they don't need and they keep the must-haves. Well, if you've spent six, 12, nine months, uh, six, nine, 12 months, there you go, um, uh, building relationships, understanding these people, what they're trying to do, providing them with useful insight, provocative questions, when they move from passive to active looking, you're the only show in town. In the enterprise space, where there are 1,000 or more uh, uh, um, employees, the average number of people that an enterprise salesperson speaks to is 1.65. Today, there are between eight and 16 evaluators, influencers, mobilizers, and decision makers who affect the decision. And you're speaking to 1.65. Yeah. You're in a rush. I 100% agree with everything you said right there. But the reality is what I, what I, what I, what I see is a lot of other people play recession, especially right now, pre layoff. Like, you know, a lot of these companies, you, anybody can cut 10% of their company and not feel a thing. Cause there's always 10% of at least, but you know, some of these companies are cutting. Yeah. But the reality is when you're going in and trying to sell them something new, these people, even if you talk to your multi-threaded and all that other stuff, a lot of times they're, they're afraid to put their name on a, on a limb because they're afraid they're going to be part of that layoff. It's almost like, do you feel like you have to wait until the layoff is done at a company for the spending to come back? And again, this is why you need to understand that it's not about the volume, it's about the quality. And it's also about uh, mm -hmm. understanding that you operate in an ecosystem. And the reality is most of these SaaS products have adjacent providers, many of whom sell to the same target market, either before them, the same time oh, yeah. or after them. And they have competitors. Now, there are people out there who, if they chose to cooperate with one another, could actually understand the customer's problem, the job to be done better. So let's take a real case in point. The number one job to be done by a venture capital general partner is raise the next fund. That's their obsession. Until they've raised the next fund, they do not rest. Now, that drives how they value the companies and how they sell it to their investors. So that drives investor expectation, but it also drives who they recruit in leadership. It drives how they compensate those leaders for short and long-term compensation, which then determines who they recruit and how they compensate and how they measure. And then that determines who they recruit and so on. And that means that the customer is a forgotten afterthought at the end of a long chain of abuse because they are worshiping at the altar of finance and forgetting no. that the customer is the reason you exist. You don't exist to get 
funding. You don't exist to have an exit. You don't exist to uh, hit your monthly quota. You exist to serve the customer's outcomes. That's what they pay for. Marcus, I want to get back to structure. You're somewhere in between. You have the transactional on the left, you have whales on the right, and you have, you know, in the middle. And we're talking about SDRs, BDRs, and then you have chief sales officers and you have chief revenue officers. BDRs, is that a sales function or is it a marketing function? I think it's the wrong question, if I'm being perfectly honest. That's I the right question. Why. He does that a lot. Well, a better question is, how can we align marketing and sales so that there is consistency and we eliminate friction for the customer? But the best question is, what is the outcome that the customer wants to accomplish that they will rent from us temporarily and for only so long as it's still relevant and fit for purpose? And what do we have to do to meet them where they are so that we are the right choice for them, the obvious, frictionless, effortless choice. Because they will tell us how to do that, but what we've got to do is get the hell out of the way. We've got to stop worrying about our quota. We've got to stop talking about our features and functionality, because I can tell you, no one fucking cares. They don't want to see your ugly baby. They want to know, can you help me fix my problem? That's it. Private equity cares, Marcus. So you better have a system in place that turns a profit or there is no business. So my well, question is, the, what's, the, a, what's the difference between chief sales officer and chief revenue officer? Well, a chief sales officer owns sales and all the functions related to it. Chief revenue officer owns marketing, um, lead gen, data, sales, customer success, account growth, product, and they have to feed all of that into the leadership and it has to feed into strategy. It has to feed into operations and their job is strategic. So don't hire one of them if what you want is a senior salesperson because you're wasting everybody's time and your money. Because layoffs are happening and it's going to be these BDRs are going to get cut first, I'm guessing. Jamie's the revenue yeah. guy. And if they well, do BDRs, get cut- I, I think BDRs have been over- pivoted and and it, it, it's true like i get i get requests and, and it's funny you said give feedback people like to give feedback one bdr is hitting me up all the time on linkedin i'm not responding because it doesn't make any sense one because he's a competitor of what we do he's trying to sell to me yeah, but he's, he's then, not actually contacting you jamie that's a bot I, I well it was on linkedin so he's doing it through linkedin right so it's, it's a not bot. well anyways that's he's sending so like, like put it this way he asked for my feedback Right? He's like, why aren't you responding? At least give me some constructive feedback. And I said, one, don't you send suck. me. Yeah, I said, no, I said, all right, you want some feedback? One, uh, you're a competitor, so prove me wrong. Two, don't ever send an executive or anybody a gif of baby Yoda saying, why don't you call me? Or in all these other gifts that you're trying to send me. I go, don't do that crap, because that's not professional. Ghosted. But he's, he trying, he's trying to be personal, Jamie. You get half of these right, experts yeah, off my tail. He no longer calls me. He no longer emails me. <clears throat> but th this is a, a dysfunction of management, Jamie. I 100% agree. If their managers taught them anything about uh, reading the room and understanding who their market was, they would have actually looked at your profile and seeing you're a fusty old fucker and getting a gif of baby Yoda is gonna put your nose out of joint because you think they're a bunch of twats, okay? When people do that, it just 
doesn't work. It grates because there's not a fit. Okay, but timely, relevant, valuable. You turn up like a twat. I mean, um, Jimmy Carr, I don't know whether I can use this. Uh, you may have to edit this bit out. But Jimmy Carr says, if you meet three cunts by 12 o'clock, you're the cunt. Now, don't be a cunt. I mean, seriously, there are so many salespeople out there who believe that someone should take their call. Be relevant. Be valuable. Be relevant. Turn up at the right time. Make sure that they want to look forward to your next call. But one of the biggest yeah. problems is there's so much irrelevancy there that when you are relevant, I almost it's not going to be effective because I'm I'm just tuned everyone out. Now, this is the real thing. Okay. And this is why I've been saying you need to understand who's adjacent to you and who's in your ecosystem. If you're going to thrive through this recession, okay, and there is a great opportunity to, because I've been through four so far, and they're great, as long as you don't lose your head and you respond appropriately. And whilst everyone else is panicking, what you do is look for the opportunities. Where are people struggling? What are they clubbing together? Where are these communities where uh, they're throwing rocks at their enemies collectively? Um, you know, who are the people who are gathering, um, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, justifying their failures? Well, go and look at what they're saying. What are the questions people are asking? Because that gives you clues as to where the real opportunity is. And then think about who can I set, who can I co-sell and co-market with? I'm pulling together uh, with 70 of my closest friends an ecosystem. And this ecosystem covers the entire go-to-market from beginning to end. Strategy, jobs to be done, data cleansing, list building, uh, targeting, uh, micro-segmentation, content production, copywriting, all the way through every hue, shape, and color. If we coordinate and we target one company simultaneously, all of us, business as usual, so it's not a pinch on our business, but we're armed with half a dozen to a dozen really good provocative questions that help us elicit the interplay, the wicked problem, yeah? Then we can get our heads together. Benjamin Franklin said, given an hour to cut down a tree, 45 minutes on sharpening the ax, and only 15 minutes cutting it down. Einstein, an hour to solve the problem, 55 minutes to think about the problem, five minutes to solve it. Well, why? Because if you understand the problem, elegant solutions fall out the other end. And when you have many eyes on the problem with diverse backgrounds and perspectives, then what you get is a sustainable solution. And what you've got at the moment is lots of people peddling individual point solutions without thinking about the negative knock-on consequences. So you've created complexity and you've sacrificed efficiency and engagement for, um, sorry, effectiveness and engagement for efficiency because the finance people want to see the numbers improve but none of those metrics matter if i post and i get one person contact me under the radar through a direct message that's better than getting ten thousand likes no elon musk says that if you need a product manual for your product it's too complicated if the product that you're selling is very easy to use and self-explanatory, don't you need a less quality of, of salesperson or do you need salespeople at all? That's kind of where I was going for on the structure. It seems to me that you can have BDRs or AdWords, whichever one is more efficient, 
that can get you the leads that you can send the high opportunities over enterprise. What do you think, Marcus? I, I think this is a really interesting question. It is one that I've been pondering uh, a lot for the last couple of years. I think what will happen is about 30% of the jobs in the SDR function uh, in particular will disappear, Many, most of those, but 30% of sales jobs. About 40% will go into the channel. Um, and those will become the direct sales forces because the tech stack has become so complicated. Well, it, in my business with my wife and I, we've got at least 20, 25 different apps running. In a bank, you have 800 to 900. So tech has become very complex and every business is a tech company. They happen to be an AI business. They happen to be a recruiter. They happen to be a paint manufacturer. It doesn't matter, but they all depend on, AI, uh, on technology. The tech stack has become more complicated and we are dependent upon it. So what we need is someone who understands it all. Now, an individual vendor who wants to make quota for this quarter doesn't have that bigger picture vision. So I think what's going to happen is the channel, the partners, ecosystems, marketplaces will be where the bulk of salespeople will uh, spend their time, but they will be aided by technology. Um, but that will depend on uh, the right setup. And that's where most things go wrong because they just buy it. And because of the turnover, um, even if you've trained someone, 18 months later, there's no one left in the business that knows how to use the fucking thing. And then, then so you've just got this tech stack of spaghetti where you've just bought more functionality that you're already paying for, but you don't know. I was always questioning why, where the CRO is coming from, and now I kind of get it. CROs are really VP of sales. I agree with you there. Don't always think of, the title, think, of, think of their charter. It, it should be what I described. Agree. Mostly, it, it's 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 giving someone a bigger hat and more medals, um, so that they feel important. But that's, often, that's what that's why it's a vanity purchase. Oh, I've got a chief revenue officer. And this is a first-time founder. Be careful of first-time founders wanting CROs because they do not know their ass from their fucking elbow. What do you think they're looking for when they do that? Um, they want so Essentially, they want someone to take the thing away from them um, and they want magic dust. And they want it way faster than it's ever going to happen. Um, now, what's interesting is if they learn to play nicely with others and what you've got to look for if you are a CRO, um, a fractional CRO or even a CRO, um, is make sure that your founder or CEO is not an adolescent in a, um, a middle-aged body, because there are quite a few of them. Okay. Now, I've been quite fortunate. Uh, I've been quite fortunate, but you've got to be really careful because you will come across them and they will derail everything. Now, the other thing, if you're fractional, what you have to be really careful of is they all want a full-time one, but they don't want to pay the money. So you've got to set very clear boundaries. And very give me unworthy. give me an expectation on fractional, Marcus. How many hours a week? Um, well, I had six on the go at once, and I never sold them time. I sold them outcomes. Because if you sell them time, you're a sucker. Because what they'll do is they'll say, I want another. Oh, can we just have another day? Um, I'll just do this. And the, the project scope creeps. And you can't, then you become part of everyone else's plan. How do you how do you budget that out by the by the outcome is what what would you be able to do as an outcome on your fractionals? Well, again, if I'm doing my CRO job, 
uh, or if I'm doing the, uh, the senior sales job in disguise. If I'm doing the senior sales job, I'm out of there generally, because uh, I want to find that out as quickly as possible. Um, but if I'm doing the grown-up job, um, then what I'm doing is I'm helping them identify what their customers are paying them for, really. Because you'd be surprised how many organizations, and very large ones, uh, their salespeople have no idea why their customer buys from them. They're in bid processes, for God's sake, where they think people buy on price. They do because you've let them, but they're not buying because of the price. They're buying because they need to fix something. We're trying to we're trying to figure out the oh, yeah, outcomes. Outcome. You're trying to put a price okay. on the outcomes. It's yeah. sort of like you go on freelancer or Upwork, and it, you can pay by the hour, or you can pay for the gig. How do you yeah. do that in that fractional CRO? Because if you're a startup, you don't got the cash to to plunk down three four hundred grand for a but CRO, you whatever. Be getting a CRO, don't get a CRO. I mean, that's a simple answer to that question. Um, you don't need a CRO. What you need is some cash in. Uh, so that when you do eventually go cash in, uh, you know, with your cap in hand uh, to try and get funding, you're in a better position and they don't shaft you completely. Um, now, honestly, um, getting funding, one of my, I, I think one of the best outcomes is helping you to identify why getting funding is a really bad, bad idea and is effectively signing your death warrant. That's one of the biggest favors a, a, a CRO could do a startup. If you are in the race for market share, uh, but you're entering into this market and you don't have cash flow, you need to find a way to turn your sales operation around so that your customers make profit in three to six months instead of 18. And that's more important than building more ship pipeline that you're going to follow up, piss off and waste time on. Because every one of those probably needs eight follow-up calls just to try and get through to them, yeah, and have a meaningful conversation where they actually want to invite you in. Now, all of that stuff is a waste. So the outcomes are to identify by the end of four months, three to five really good um, bets that you can make that will help you to get closer to your outcome having built a map, a pathway over the next three years to get to that outcome. But you will, uh, my experience is in the startup phase, you almost never get that chance because they're sucking you into uh, the minutiae and you've got to be careful of that. And that was, my, that was on me, that was my mistake. What's the difference between sales in the States and sales uh, across the pond? What do you think the big differences are calling on the companies? Uh, I've got my opinion. <laughs> Brits historically have been a bit more reserved. Americans tend to be a bit more gung-ho. Um, and you guys kind of expect it. Uh, we're less receptive uh, to cold prospecting. You hate it, but it's you know, part of the American way of life, whatever. Um, there's a fair amount of reserve this end. The way we go to market, I think... The Americans, what Americans do really well, they do better than almost anyone ever. But the rest is shit. We have a bigger bunch of mediocre middle. Um, and we've got a few fantastic, Australia you should be asking that question of. There are some real gems coming out of Australia. 
Simon Bowen, Models Method. Again, another one of the brightest minds in modern selling. No one comes close. He worked with a client of his and they sold six battleships to the Department of Defense. 14 minutes. Exactly. That's an eyebrow raiser. I mean, that gets you moist if anything does. For some reason, the culture in EMEA or, you know, is there's more sell-through partners a lot at the enterprise level. There's a lot of a lot of distrib almost distributor of sales. Whereas yep. in America, it's usually almost 90% one-on-one uh, vendor to client as opposed to vendor. You're going to lose. Uh, the Americans will lose massively uh, to the Europeans for that reason. Because the partners have breadth, they have depth, they've got longevity, and you guys are trying to transact. And no one wants to have someone put their hand in their pocket and try and rip out their dollars. Um, the the, the short-termism, um, the, there are two books that every leader needs to read. The first one is The Fourth Turning by William Strauss and Neil Howe. And the second is... Um, how to Understand the Changing World Order by Ray Dalio. Now, they both talk about historical economic cycles. And the third one that I would add is Mark Carney's values. Um, now, all three of them talk about uh, the uh, long, medium, and short-term economic cycles. You cannot fight the fact that America's empire is coming to an end. You cannot fight the fact that your economy, because you are the, uh, the reserve currency, um, has reached a point now where you've printed so many dollars that you've gone over the other side of the hill and you're on the downward slope. So you have to adapt. Now, most of you won't, but some of you will. And I'm hoping you're listening to this and you get in touch with any of us, okay? Because this is what we're all about. This is about... How do you thrive in the changing environment? That's what Darwin was talking about. That's what the whole survival of the fittest message is. Survival of those who can uh, adapt best to the current environment. I think the BDR function shouldn't be an either or. I think what we should have is pods of people, all of whom work with the customer um, as a partner. And we create war rooms. We create collective areas where we work with them medium to long term to understand where they're headed. And we work with their, uh, their other uh, vendors who may be competitors. And we get our heads together to try and work out how to help them get their outcomes. Our job as salespeople, and Zig Ziglar said it, if you help enough other people get their needs met, you will get your needs met eventually. It's being long term selfish, nothing more. That's how human communities got to the top of the food chain. I think England, they do a better job vetting because there's harder rules to get rid of somebody. Plus, don't you use recruiting shops? Or at least it was the last time I was there versus here we use. It depends. It's, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. There's contingency. You do it yourself. You do it on LinkedIn. There's boards like Monster. Um, you've, um, you, know, you put bounties out. Um, it's all sorts of shit. Uh, recruitment is so bad. I mean, we are awful at it. Do you know 30% of people uh, leave their job within 42 days? 
I mean, what a waste. You've just gone through the entire interview and selection process. You've paid to train them. You've provisioned them. You've onboarded them. And then they fuck off because you were shit. Because it wasn't the job that they were sold. The manager's an asshole. They can't work out. Whatever. You should know that stuff. Why do you not know how to hire? I mean, if you, if you hire the right people, 95% of your management problems go away. And you don't need a land army. And you don't need to recruit 10 and have a revolving door where nine of them have gone by the end of 14 months. That's fucking insane and immoral. Let's get him fired up. Marcus. Do you think uh, pay at risk is going to go away if you think the sales function is going to change, meaning that you're going to just pay them a salary? Do you think that's ever going to be in sales? I don't know. I, I'm really excited about this. So we're, we're, we're having this conversation uh, within our ecosystem. And <clears throat> um, I don't know how you transfer this, but the idea that we've got at the moment, this is an opportunity for us to rethink the way compensation works. Um, there's a fabulous book, Punished by Reward, by Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N, which suggests that um, paying people turns play into work. Um, and actually, you're much better off creating the conditions where um, people feel like they are doing meaningful work, where they feel like they're making a meaningful contribution, and where their reward is on the basis of their peers, uh, the contribution, the customer. Now, using smart contracts, it's potentially possible to do this. So based on the contribution, and this is why I think we should have pods, because why should sales get uh, the bulk of the money um, and uh, then other people get a percentage, which is totally out of their control and in the hands of an AE, who may be a total psychopath or an entire car crash, um, and you're waiting for your 10% of nothing. So you work as a team, you hold each other to account. Um, you have an environment where you have high challenge and high support, no room for egos. So within our ecosystem, we have five core values. Number one is no asshole. I don't want egos there. I don't want people bringing that shit. Number two, never take advantage, even if you can. So if I introduce Pete and he can see an opportunity for him to make a quick sale, but he knows that Jamie's solution is better for that customer's requirement, he's obligated to bring Jamie in. It's up to the customer then to decide. Yep. So never take advantage. Number three, buyer safety first. Uh, but what does buyer safety conjure in your mind? Don't get ripped off. Yeah, it provides the outcome that you promised. Absolutely. Well, the trust equation, My one of my mentors, Charlie Green, uh, wrote, uh, he came up with the trusted advisor, uh, trust-based selling, another must read. Um, and trust equals credibility plus reliability plus intimacy over self-orientation. Now, as a buyer, credibility and reliability are table stakes. If I'm paying you money, you better be delivering what I expect in the manner that I expect to the budget and time frame that I expect. And if you're not, I will be disappointed. Yeah. Now, intimacy is the most important operator in that equation. That means I have to get close to you and you have to let me in. 
We have to share confidences. We have to share vulnerabilities. Am I going to do that when I'm trying to make quota and you're one of 86 calls I've got to make today? Not a chance. So I don't think that function has a future in its current form. But if you transpose the skills into a hot market or even a warm market, you convert from instead of one in 20, you convert one in six in a warm market. That's the average um, conversion rate from referrals. From uh, That's from a quarter of a million BNI members, uh, their data. Um, now, instead, when you're selling hot, you've got about a 64 to 81% conversion rate. So why would you not apply the same skills in order to attract hot partners? Because the AI informs us that the biggest transactions are partner assisted and they occur in the third generation of the seller. Now, if that's the case, going direct one-on-one, -on -one, I wouldn't give you much chance, but I may be wrong. Marcus, you got some podcasts and some publications out there. Why don't we take the time to plug them? What's the best way for our listeners and viewers to get a hold of you? Um, LinkedIn is my uh, largely, my, it started out as a work avoidance tool, but actually it's my principal uh, route for generating income. Um, I mean, we, we generate anywhere between 250 and 750 a year off it. Um, it's lovely. Um, and it's just doing my hobby, which is writing and um, arguing with people. Um, Twitter, I'm the underscore inquisitor. Um, and the podcast, um, there's the inquisitor podcast. Uh, we won a gold medal, best sales and marketing podcast, top sales world, 411 episodes at the moment. Um, and we ask all the really shitty, horrible, gnarly questions that either you should or want to, uh, but don't have the nerve to. Um, and then we work out what's wrong, hold up the ugly mirror, um, and then uh, we work out how to fix it. Um, so it's been really instructive. Um, and uh, that's it. So, uh, email Marcus yeah. at laughsightandlast.com. But I generally read email when I'm on the can about four in the morning. Marcus, we aspire to reach your level of shittiness. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. <laughs> <laughs> no one hires me for hugs and cuddles. <laughs> Marcus, thank you so much. We'd like to thank you for listening and watching. And a special thank you to our Patreon supporters, Demand Farm Analytics, Trent S. and Aaron J. DemandFarm.com unlock key account growth, smart software to bring account planning and relationship intelligence into your CRM, making key account management practice data-driven, predictable, and scalable. Go to DemandFarm.com, ask for Iron Man. Hey, check out Brett Keltner's Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass at Winalytics.com. In eight weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team start to build the mindset and skills needed to succeed in a new buyer environment. Sign your team up for the masterclass today at winalytics.com. If you'd like to help us out, we'll gladly take your support at patreon.com slash sassholes. Cue the music. Every sperm is sacred. Every sperm is great. If a sperm is wasted
God gets quite irate. Every sperm is sacred. Mine. 